Hello? Hey, it's a four-way. Is everybody on? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? Present. Oh my god, you're never gonna believe what I just heard. Bitch, we need to be in person for this one. I'm on my way. I'll grab the champagne. Perfect. See you guys in ten. Welcome back, toppers. It's another week in October, and you know what that means. It means we're talking about another true crime case, which I told you what it was last week, but if you did not listen to last week's episode, today we're going to be covering the case of Eileen Warnos. Now, you might be surprised to hear it's a female because us, us ladies don't normally commit crimes like this, but you know, there's always, there's always the one. I'm sure there's more than one, but I'm just saying. <sighs> so today it's kind of longer than last week. So that's, that's for sure. But like I said, this month we're going to be covering cases that inspired very popular movies. So today, like I said, we're covering Eileen Warnos, but she inspired many movies, but the movie I'm picking to talk about is Monster. I watched this film not too long ago actually for the first time and I already knew the story of Eileen but it gave a different look into her life. So I, I would recommend it. It was pretty interesting to watch. Definitely definitely captured the character. It was pretty creepy honestly. It seemed very real. A little about the film before we get into the case itself. Today we'll be covering the serial killer named Eileen Warnos who the movie Monster is based on. Monster is a 2000 and oh my god i wrote in my notes 3003 it's 2003 jeez all monster is a 2003 american biographical crime drama film written and directed by patty jenkins in her feature directorial debut the film is about a serial killer named eileen warnos a former street prostitute who murdered seven of her male clients between 1989 and 1990 and was executed in florida in 2002 the director patty obtained a lot of her research for the film by exchanging letters with the real life eileen before her execution in 2002 she also stated in an interview that she used court documents footage from interviews and all of the transcripts and depositions from the trial patty said while making the film they paid special attention to details making sure it was as true to the real story as possible even going as far as to film in the same bar warnos used to frequent the bar's owner al bulling said of Charlize Theronin, which was the actress who played Warnos in the film, quote, every minute she was in the bar, she was the character. Everything she did, from lighting cigarettes to laughing, was on target, and how she acted, it was beyond excellent, end quote. Bulling wasted no time in marketing the bar's notorious visitor, selling t-shirts that declare the last resort as the, quote, world-famous home of ice-cold beer and killer women, end quote. You can also buy bottles of Warnos's favorite hot sauce, that Billing renamed Crazed Killer Hot Sauce. The real Al Billing is seen briefly in the film as a bartender who tells a drunk Theronin as Warnos that she can't run a tab for more beer. She begs, Al will give me credit, and he gives her another beer. On a side note, Bulling said that he can remember Warnos asking for a ride home at times, but that she never propositioned anyone in the bar. After Eileen Warnos' 1991 arrest made the news, three women showed up at the bar with photos to find out if their missing husbands had ever been seen in the bar with Eileen. However, Eileen's lover, who was played by Christina Ritchie, was not accurately depicted, which is most likely for legal reasons. Warnus's companion did not go by the name Shelby. Her name was Tyria? Tyria? Let me find out how her name is actually pronounced. Please hold. Um, I'm gonna be honest, I don't know how her name is pronounced, 
but a lot of people said she went by Ty, so we're just going to refer to her as Ty Moore, okay? Sorry. Her name was Ty Moore, and she was a strawberry redhead. Ty is still alive and could sue the filmmakers. Several other films have been made depicting the life of Eileen. I picked Monster to tell Eileen's story just because I watched it recently, so that's why we did with that. So, that's all I have about the film. Um, like I said, my thoughts on the film, clearly I didn't know Eileen personally, like how would I have done that? So, whether or not it was accurately depicted of her story, who fucking knows, but the director and the acting was 10 out of 10. It was really convincing and from the pictures and interviews I have seen of Eileen, the actress did an amazing job. She looked just like her. Yeah, I would recommend watching it. Anyway, on to the case itself. <sighs> Buckle up boys and girls and everyone in between it's it's longer than last week so yeah warnos was born on february 29th 1956 in rochester michigan making her a pisces if anyone cares i will always be saying the zodiac sign when i talk of killers because i think it's just very very interesting to see who was what you know what i mean i feel like a lot of them are usually gemini sagittarius is like those but the fact that she was a pisces i don't know pisces women they'd be crazy anyway warnos had a pretty bad childhood her mother, Diane Warnos, was only 14 when she married Leo Dale Pittman, who was only 16 himself. Eileen never got to meet her father since he was incarcerated for sex crimes against children. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and eventually committed suicide in prison. Eileen's mother, Diane, abandoned her and her brother, Keith, and left them with her parents, Laurie and Britta Warnos. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning of Eileen's tragic childhood. Her grandparents were alcoholics and abusive in nature. On many occasions, Laurie would beat Eileen after removing her clothing. He would also sexually abuse her, and so would his friends. She also had sexual relations with her brother. By the time she was 11, she would prostitute herself for money to buy cigarettes and beers. On March 23, 1971, Eileen gave birth to her only child, who was the result of rape at the hands of her grandfather's accomplice. She gave birth at a home for unwed mothers, which was common practice for those times. The child, a baby boy, was then given up for adoption. She was only 15 at that time and dropped out of school a few months later. After a dispute with her grandfather, she was kicked out of the house and had nowhere to go. She ended up living in the woods and continuing to prostitute to earn a living. In the mid-1970s, she was arrested for charges related to assault and disorderly conduct and eventually settled in Florida, where she met a wealthy yachtsman, Louis Fell. The two were married in 1976, but Fell annulled the union shortly after when Warnos was arrested again for another altercation. In the early 1980s, after her brother died from cancer, she decided to move to Florida to work as a prostitute. In 1986, after being involved in numerous additional crimes, Warnos met 24-year-old Ty Moore in Daytona, Florida, where the two began a romantic relationship. It would later be revealed that from late 1989 until the fall of 1990, Warnos had murdered at least seven men along the Florida highways. However, she was only convicted of six when one of the bodies was not able to be recovered. In order, I'm going to tell you who the victims are and how they were found. Victim number one, 51-year-old Richard Mallory from Clearwater, Florida, owner of an electronics repair shop. On December 1st, 1989, Mallory's car was found abandoned in Volusia, Valencia County. Twelve days later, his body was found several miles away in a forested area, having been shot three times and wrapped in a carpet. Victim number two, 43-year-old David Spears, winter garden construction worker of Brandonton, Florida. Spears' naked body was found on a dirt road in Citrus County on June 1st, 1990. 
He had died from six bullet wounds to the torso. Victim three, 40-year-old part-time rodeo worker Charles Karskadian. Karskadian? On June 6, 1990, in Pasco County, Karskadian's body was found with nine small caliber bullet holes to the upper chest and torso. Victim number four, 50-year-old sausage salesman Troy Burris from Ocala. Burris's badly decomposed body was found on August 4, 1990 in a wooded area in Marion County with two bullet wounds. Victim five, 56-year-old Charles Humphreys, a former police chief and child abuse investigator for the state of Florida. On September 12, 1990, Humphreys' fully clothed body was found in Marion County with six bullet wounds to the head and torso. His car was found in Suwanee, Suwanee County. These names, who who made these words? I want to talk to Webster because no. Victim six, 62-year-old Walter Jeno, Antonio, truck driver, part-time security guard, and member of reserve police. Antonio's nearly nude body was found on November 19, 1990 in Dixie County with four shots in the back of the head. His car was located five days later across the state in Brevard, Brevard County. Victim 7, 65-year-old Peter Seams, Sims, Seams, a retired merchant seaman who spent much of his time doing Christian ministry outreach work, whose car was found in Orange Springs on July 4th, 1990. Witness identified Ty Moore and Lee Warnos as having abandoned the car after crashing it off State Road 15. A witness in the accident said the two women struggled frantically out of the car, cursed at one another, and throwing beer cans into the bushes, both with minor injuries. Warnos was alleged to have ripped the license plate off the vehicle with her bare hands in a desperate attempt to remove the car of any discriminating identification. When the fire department found the women a short distance away and asked if they were the ones who had been in the accident, Warnus reportedly cursed at them and denied involvement, so they let her be. Seems body was never found. Authorities were eventually able to track down Warnus, who used many different aliases and more from fingerprints and palm prints left in the crashed Peter Sims vehicle. Warnus was arrested in a bar in Port Orange, Florida, while police tracked down Moore in Pennsylvania. To avoid prosecution, Moore made a deal, and in mid-January of 1991, she elicited a phone call confession from Warnos, who took full responsibility for the murders. The exact timeline of the arrest and trial is as follows. January 9th, 1991. At the last resort biker bar in Daytona Beach, Warnos was arrested on an outstanding warrant following a lengthy investigation into recent homicides. Detectives has whoa words detectives had gathered a considerable amount of evidence implicating warnos in the murders including her fingerprints on pawned items belonging to some of the murdered men and from cigarette buds that had been found in the abandoned vehicles the witness who had seen the two women crash peter sims car was able to help police come up with a composite sketch which was released statewide ty moore had seen the sketch and left warnos only a few days after her arrest returning to his sister's home in pennsylvania this left warnos heartbroken and she did little other than drink until the time of her arrest two days later moore was tracked down in scranton pennsylvania and was convinced by law enforcement to trick Warnos into confessing to the crimes. Strangely enough, rather than becoming a suspect herself, Moore was made into a state's witness. In exchange for immunity, Moore agreed to elicit a confession from Warnos. She was brought back to Florida and set up in a motel where, under guidance from the police, she made multiple calls to the incarcerated Warnos, 
spinning a story about police harassing her and her family about her concerns that she would be charged for the murders. She cried and told Eileen that she was scared and begged for her to confess. Moore even went so far as to suggest that she might kill herself. Eileen promised that she would protect Ty and look after her well-being, even if it meant confessing to the crimes. January 16, 1991. Eileen confessed to having committed the murders but maintained that she did so in self-defense because most of the men were either going to beat her up or have non-consensual sex with her. Additionally, while inconsistencies in Warnos's three-hour confession were being claimed by prosecution and police, Warnos agreed that she was going through delirium during the interviews as a result of alcohol withdrawal and that she was unable to think straight or function properly. She also claimed that police frequently interrupted her and did not allow her to tell her the full version of events. Allegations of police misconduct began to surface, in which claims were made that Ty Moore and a number of police officers involved in the investigation and arrest of Eileen Warnos had been making movie deals with producers and authors wanting to document the life of America's first female serial killer. Additionally, allegations were made that Sheriff Dan Moreland and three of his officers were reportedly discussing movie deals with Hollywood a month before Warner's arrest. Sergeant Brian Jarvis of the Marion County Police Force, who led the murder investigation against Warner's, claimed that he was harassed at work following the discovery that members of the force had plans to elicit the help of Time Moore in obtaining movie rights to Eileen's story. A state attorney's report backed up the claim that the finding that Captain Binder I think, Bingard, Sergeant Munster, and Sergeant Dan Henry were all involved in movie discussions with Moore following Eileen's arrest, and that there were documents which indicated a movie proposal with Republic Pictures. However, since no signed documents were found or proof of money having exchanged hands uncovered, the repercussions were minor. Major Dan Henry resigned after the surfacing of a bugged phone conversation he'd had about making movie deals around the Warnos case. Sergeant Munster and Captain Binger, Binger, I will not know how to pronounce that person's name, were transferred out of the criminal investigation division following the exposure of their movie deal surfaced. But no other disciplinary action was taken, nor were there any attempts to give Warnos a fair trial. Adding to the insidious corruption was an incident where Captain Jarvis's home was broken into following a threatening note, and the Warnos case file and investigator files inside were destroyed while nothing else was touched. The Florida Police Department suspiciously refused to investigate the incident, even going so far as to claim Jarvis had set up the burglary himself. Shortly before her trial for the murder of Richard Mallory, Warnus was allegedly adopted by a strange, born-again Christian woman named Arlene Praley, who claimed that God had sent her to help Eileen. Warnos hungered for this kind of positive attention and their friendship blossomed. However, it wasn't long before Arlene began attempting to negotiate her own money-making deals with film producers and writers. It was suspected that her adoption was simply to cover up being able to get access to Eileen for the purpose of profit because only relatives were allowed to visit Warnos at the time. Meanwhile, Warnos continued to maintain that she killed all of these men in self-defense after they became violent with her and attempted to rape her. She claimed in court that Mallory had tied her to a steering wheel in his car, anally and vaginally raped her, choked her with a cord, and squirted a bottle full of rubbing alcohol onto her backside and vagina, as well as her mouth. While Mallory had previously served a nine-year prison sentence for assault and attempted rape, 
there was no confirmed reports of his violence against women during any of the many encounters he had with prostitutes and other sex workers in gentlemen's clubs. Further, Moore testified that on the day Warnos returned home after the murder of Mallory, she showed no signs of trauma or injury, and Warnos herself seemed to tell conflicting stories regarding events that had unfolded prior to the killings. Yet Warnos claimed that at the beginning of the Mallory trial, there was picture evidence of damage to the steering wheel, which was indicative of someone being tied to it and struggling to free themselves. But the pictures were not brought out as evidence in the trial, but the validity behind the claim was difficult to verify. However, it was important to keep in mind the corruption that went on behind the scenes during this case, which could call into question the validity of Moore's testimony, as well as the hypercritical manner in which Eileen's behavior was approached. It would make sense that, in an attempt to continue to portray her as a predatory serial killer, taking serious allegations of rape might interfere with the public's perception of her character. January 13, 1992, the first and only murder trial held was for the death of Richard Mallory. It was during this trial that Warnus relayed that a graphic rape and assault had occurred at the hands of Mallory, but his history of having served time for an assault and attempted rape, as well as institutional documents stating that he possessed strong sociopathic traits, were not brought out in the trial. Trish Jenkins, Lee's lawyer at the time, was heavily criticized for her failure to bring Mallory's previous convictions to the court's attention, and this was in many ways considered to be a grave injustice against Eileen's right for a fair trial. Warnos was also the only person to testify on her behalf, and her inability to control her emotions would again come back to damage her case. During the Mallory trial, the prosecution was also permitted to bring in evidence from the other six murders, despite the fact that prior bad acts were normally inadmissible in criminal cases, and this also was believed to greatly influence sentencing. Lee was convicted of Richard Mallory's murder and became furious in the courtroom, verbally attacking the jury members as they exited, with no doubt influencing sentencing the next day. She was likely also hurt and angry after realizing that Moore had betrayed her and had cried in the courtroom while listening to police recordings of the deceptive phone calls. Having Moore in the courtroom testifying against her was also very likely difficult for Warnos, who at this point must have felt that she had been betrayed and used by everyone. As Ty's betrayal, Eileen refused to leave her cell or speak with anyone. While on death row in a maximum security prison, she became deeply depressed and withdrawn. After the Mallory trial, Arlene Praley hired a new lawyer to work on Lee's case named Stephen Blazer, who would also end up being accused of improperly defending her. Arlene Praley and Steve Blazer convinced Warners to plead no contest to the next three murders, which is legally viewed as a guilty plea. Blazer was suspected of having urged Eileen to plead no contest because he had absolutely no experience with death penalty cases and might have known that he was out of his leak. Praley apparently believed that if Eileen came clean in the Lord's eyes, she would be absolved of her sins and also claimed that the death penalty would be a positive outcome because Lee could return home to Jesus more quickly. If your lawyer is saying that to you, get a new lawyer. Anyway, March 31st, 1992. Eileen pled no contest to the murder of Dick Humphrey, Troy Burress, and David Spears. She continued to maintain that Richard Mallory had violently raped her, but recanted similar claims against the others, saying that they had only tried to. Yet, during an interview with documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield, when Lee thought that the cameras were turned off, she admitted 
that recanting her allegations of rape was only done for the purpose of receiving the death penalty because at that point she claimed she just wanted to die. May 15, 1992. Warnos was given three more death penalties for those murders. In June of 1992, Warnos pled guilty to the killing of Charles Karskadian. Karskadian? and in November received a fifth death sentence. During this trial, the defense did make efforts to bring to light Mallory's sexually violent offense, but the judge refused to allow this evidence into court and later denied requests for a retrial. February of 1993, Eileen pled guilty to the death of Walter Geno Antonio and received yet another death sentence. In the case of Peter Sims, since a body was never found, Eileen could not be tried for the crime. Arlene Praley and Stephen Glazer were to be in and out of Warnos's life. Lee would constantly suspect that they were using her for profit, kick them out of her life, and then feel as though she desperately needed the help and reestablish contact with them. This pattern of throwing people out for being liars and traitors and then feeling as though they were the only ones who could save her would be a chronic habit of Eileen's. She also had this kind of behavior with various members of her legal representation team, making it possible for anyone to actually help her. Eileen did have one constant friend who did not betray her, an old companion from high school named Dawn Botkins. Warnos wrote many letters to Botkins during her time of, on death row, which Botkins saved. Dawn promised Lee that she would someday publish Eileen's letters in a book in order to allow her to communicate her truth in the midst of all the book and movie deals that Eileen claimed were full of lies. Dawn would ultimately make good on this promise some years later after Eileen's execution, producing a book called Dear Dawn, Eileen Warnos in her own words. Yet Eileen's time on death row would still prove to be extremely hard on her emotionally. Locked down 23 hours of a day in a small cell with very little human contact would eventually lead to further deterioration of her mental state. Her written correspondence with her dear friend Dawn and her devotion to reading the Bible would be her lifeline for coping on death row. July of 2001, Warnos appeared before a circuit judge to request that her mandated appeals be stopped so that the criminal justice system could proceed with her death sentence. In an attempt to speed up her execution, Warnos recanted her claims that the murders were in self-defense. October 9, 2002, Eileen Warnos was put to death by lethal injection in Florida State Prison at the age of 46. <sighs> that was... That was a lot, but we have the last two things I usually like to wrap up cases with, which are the, well, at least cases where the person's put to death because this is the only time that you have this information. So I like to wrap it up normally with their last meals and their last words. And like I said last week, you could tell a lot about a person's mental state on what their last meal is. You know what I mean? Because hers really is sad. Honestly, her last meal is depressing. Her reported last words were, I'd just like to say, I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mother ship and all, I'll be back, end quote. I don't get it. I don't, maybe I'm missing, a, maybe I'm missing something because I didn't, I don't know. I, mean, I might be missing something, but I don't understand the, her last words. Her remains were cremated and scattered by a tree in her hometown. Personally, this is my, this is the part I find the most interesting, which is the last meal. So, Eileen's last meal, let's just, well, let's take a moment and guess. Well, I can't guess. I already know what it is. You can guess. It's depressing. Her last meal is depressing. Okay, now that I have my Dora Explorer moment, I hope you answered. Her last meal was a single cup of black coffee. 
Why? At least eat something. That's so sad. Just a cup of black. And ugh, I love coffee, but black coffee? No creamer? Are you joking? I would have at least gotten a Starbucks. You know what I mean? Shit, someone else is paying? I would have gotten two Starbucks coffees. <sighs> anyway, that wraps up the story of Eileen Warnos. Again, I definitely recommend that you watch the movie Monster if you have not already. It shows a very, very convincing not convincing because I don't know what actually no one knows what actually happened besides the murder victims at her you know what I mean but it shows a very um I don't know it's just crazy I would watch it I recommend it anyway like I said you already know what next week's episode is about if you watch my YouTube channel so it's not a surprise so I'll let you know now next week we are going to be talking about the serial killer who inspired the film silence of the lambs do you know who it is well you will find out next week hope you enjoyed the episode thank you for listening if you have any suggestions like always you can let me know in the instagram in the instagram oh my god i'm like 95 on instagram on either over the topics or my personal one again thanks for listening and have a great week bye <laughs>